Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendez, and this is episode 17. Bring the Ruckus. This episode of History of Portugal is brought to you by the generous members of our Patreon community. You too can support this project by going to patreon.com forward slash history of Portugal and sign up for a tier of support and where you'll be able to ask any questions you like and have them answered on the show. And thank you so much to Erica for signing up already and helping to ensure the longevity of the show. And whether you're a member or not, you can still help me grow this podcast by recommending it to friends, family, co-workers, or people in line in the grocery store. And please give us a rating and a review on your platform of choice. The more reviews we get the more visible the show will become and the more people will be able to find it. And if you have any questions or comments, you can email me at historyofportugalpod at gmail.com. Last episode, we delved into the dynastic battles between the successors of Alfonso III, beginning in 910 AD, and we concluded our survey with the death of Ramiro II in the year 951 AD. This episode, we will continue the saga of the northern royal struggles of succession. And now, let's get started. On the death of Hamidu II, his 25-year-old son, Ordoinu III, inherited the throne from his father. Ordoinu had been married since 945 to Uraka, a daughter of of one of the former rebel counts that we talked about last episode, Fernan González of Castile. It seems like Ordoño III made haste to reverse some of the political alliances that his father had secured in the final years of his reign. 
The other rebel we talked about, Count Diego of Saldana, makes frequent appearances in royal charters at the beginning of Ordoño's reign, as well as his son, Munio Diaz. We also have Count Fernando Ansures II of Monzon, whose father had been given Castile back during Fernán González's revolt. But as mentioned last episode, Fernán González was restored to Castile. So that meant that Castile was taken from him a year later, when Fernán González was restored as Count of Castile in 945. Anyway, Anzures II, who at first does not make any appearances in royal documents, by 954, not only does he become a regular fixture of the court, he also signs at least one charter using the title of Duke. And this is remarkable, because we have no other documents of this period bearing that title. It's been postulated that that title may have been a mark of special favor from the king. And why did he get special favor from the king, you may ask? Well, the answer may lie in a dramatic, but of course, poorly recorded episode. According to the Chronicle of San Piru, Count Fernán González, who I will remind you was Ordoño's father-in-law, got up to his old tricks again and went into open revolt against him. And this time, he was backed by King García Sánchez of Navarre. Their goal was to overthrow Ordoño III and replace him with his half-brother, Sancho, whose mother, I'm sure you remember, was the sister of the King of Navarre. Sadly, the chronicle doesn't give us a date for this event, nor is there any mention of it in our Arab sources. But given the fact that Fernán González was present in the early charters of Ardoño III, we can safely assume that it didn't occur in that time period. But a clue to the time frame we're looking at is the rise to favor of González's rival, Fernán Anzúrez, around 954, which may have been a result of the apparently speedy crushing of the revolt. He also received several estates from the king, which seem like they may have been a reward for his service against the rebellion. The Chronicle of Sampiru goes on to mention another poorly recorded conspiracy against the crown, this time in Galicia. We don't know much about who was involved or what their goals were. It's possible that its suppression may have something to do with the confiscations of a few nobles' estates referred to in one Galician charter in May of 955. But that's just an educated supposition. That same year, we have mention of the only major military expedition of the reign, when a raid launched by Ordoño reached the area just north of Lisbon, in which a hefty sum of loot was taken. It's been put forward that it's highly likely that this raid must have included the Galician frontier aristocracy, and may have been a way of rewarding and reuniting them in the aftermath of the failed uprising. Both the rebellion of Galicia and that of the Castilian Navarre alliance show us just how important it was for the Leonese kings to be ever vigilant of the politics of their eastern and western territories as they could erupt into rebellion quite easily. However, Ordoño III died suddenly in late 956. 
He was barely 30 years old and had ruled the kingdom of Leon for about five years. His only direct heir was his eight-year-old son, Vermudu. There has been much scholarly disagreement over whether or not Vermudu was a legitimate son and who exactly his mother was. But regardless of all of that, the fact was that in 956, he was not old enough to be seen as a credible candidate for the crown. So, on the death of Ordoño III, either by election or by force, the crown passed to the late king's half-brother, Sancho I, also known as Sancho the Fat. Apparently, Sancho hadn't been part of Ordoño's royal court, which might indicate that things between them were not great. Additionally, it's reported that although he had close ties with the monarchy of Navarre, he didn't have the connections he should have had, namely with the aristocracy of Galicia, and maintaining their loyalty rightfully became a huge concern. Along with Galicia, Sancho had another problem brewing, this time in the quietest section of the north, namely the Asturias. As you can imagine, the Asturian aristocracy wasn't too thrilled about being so far removed from all the action on the southern frontiers and all the riches and glory that came from being a frontier lord. Additionally, they went from being the center of power in the north with the capital in Oviedo to now not even having a king of their own since 932. This increasing irrelevancy naturally became a source of simmering tension. But before those internal issues came to the forefront, Sancho's first sucker punch hit him from the south. As I mentioned last episode, a peace treaty had been signed between Córdoba and León that lasted about five seconds, as a proxy war broke out in Navarre shortly after. In July 957, that proxy war turned into a full-blown fist to the face as an Umayyad raid burst into the kingdom of Leon. It's reported that the Umayyads brought back to Córdoba 400 human heads, along with a large number of horses and beasts of burden. It's likewise indicated that Navarre was also hit with a similar raid on their frontier regions. So, as his nickname indicated, Sancho was overweight. Allegedly, he was so much overweight that he couldn't even mount a horse. And this was a serious problem. Because, as you might remember, what was the number one legitimizer of rule in this period? That's right, victory in battle. So if the king is so encumbered that he can't even mount a horse to lead his troops into battle, then he has zero credibility as a war leader. So you take this cultural impetus and combine it with the latest humiliation that was the Umayyad raid, shake it up, pour it out, and what you get is a revolt that overthrew Sancho I and replaced him with Ordoño IV, also known as Ordoño the Bad. And it should come as no surprise that one of the leading men of this revolt was none other than our old friend, Count Fernán González of Castile. This guy. Ever the savvy political player, Count González married his daughter Uraca, 
who was now the widow of Ordoño III, to the new king, Ordoño IV. Ordoño IV was the oldest son of Alfonso IV. He was born just before his father's abdication to become a monk. We don't know much about him, but from a modern historical perspective, there doesn't seem to be any real reason for his nickname the Bad. But it's also good to note that this nickname only appears in later centuries in Castilian histories. Most notably, in the 13th century writings of Archbishop Rodrigo Jimenez de Rada, who called him, quote, vile, cowardly, effeminate, and hateful to God and to men, unquote. Our earliest records for Ordoño IV begin from March 958 and were issued for the Church of Santiago de Compostela. But by May of that year, he was making grants around the Kingdom of Leon, and by November, he was in the city of Leon. But before we can continue, we have to rewind a bit and catch up with the dethroned Sancho I. After he was ousted from power, Sancho fled east to Navarre to seek safety among his relatives in Pamplona. And while there, he found more than safety. He found a possible way back to power. His grandmother, Queen Toda of Navarre, came up with a pretty clever plan that might surprise you. She sent him to Córdoba to request military aid from the former emir and now self-proclaimed caliph of Al-Andalus, Abdalahman III. And we'll get into his reign next episode. But in any case, the request for military aid was granted. While in Córdoba, he was tended to by the caliph's personal physician to help him lose weight. And reportedly, the treatment was a success. Now, in an improved physical condition, Sancho I joined the military leaders of the Umayyads and Navarre, where they then launched their combined forces into an invasion of León. Realistically, Ordoño IV never stood a chance against the military might he was faced with, so he fled into the Asturias in 959. But by 961, the leaders of the Asturias realized that any association with Ordoño IV might be bad for their health, so he was unceremoniously kicked out of that realm. He and his wife escaped to Burgos in her father's county of Castile. But the Castilians made the same calculations as the Asturians, and he was ejected from there too. He rather amusingly ended up going into exile in Córdoba, the very power that helped to overthrow him. His wife Uraka and two infant sons did not join him in exile. It seems like the main reason the Castilians didn't want anything to do with him was the fact that his main ally, Count Fernán González, had been captured by the forces of Navarre in 960 and imprisoned in Pamplona, so no one wanted to be seen as aiding his interests. Count González was still being held as a prisoner when the Caliph Abdalahman III died in October of 961 in the middle of the never-ending peace talks with the Christian kingdoms. The new Caliph, Al-Hakam I, decided to flex his political and military muscle to show everyone who is boss, and began by threatening Sancho I 
that he was willing to restore Ordoingo IV to power and started mustering his army for a northern expedition. Sancho I rapidly sent envoys to find a diplomatic solution to this and signed a treaty. Our Arab sources claim that the treaty spelled out that Sancho formally recognized himself and all of his subjects as being under the authority of the caliph. This claim strikes me as implausible. But you never know. Perhaps Sancho said what he had to say in order to avoid a war he didn't think he could win. The caliph could then boast to his subjects that he was overlord of the whole peninsula, while on the ground nothing actually changed. The former king Ordoño IV then just disappears from our historical record and we have no idea what happened to him. Now that he was restored to power, Sancho I sought to firm up his position by aligning himself with the enemies of Ferdinand González. His first step to that end was to marry Teresa Ansúrez, the sister of Fernando Ansúrez II, Count of Monzón. It seems like Count Fernando managed to make himself a permanent fixture of the regime until his death in 978. Back in Navarre, our old pal, Fernán González of Castile, was still a prisoner of the king in Pamplona. And during his imprisonment, Córdoba and Navarre were busy hammering out details of their peace treaty with the new caliph. Remarkably, the caliph was constantly demanding that Fernán González be sent to Córdoba as part of the treaty. And I can only presume that the reason for this was that the caliphs were finding it quite useful to have an enemy of the current king of León at their disposal, to be used as pawns in the wider political games between the kingdoms. But regardless of the caliph's reasons, Navarre consistently declined these demands, because the king was able to get territorial concessions out of the count and bring him firmly into Navarre's sphere of influence. Fernán González's daughter would end up marrying yet another prince, the king of Navarre's son, García Sánchez. And it seems likely that Fernán González was subsequently restored as Count of Castile in 962, thanks to the backing of the king of Navarre. Sometime after the negotiations of the caliph were completed, Sancho I took the opportunity that peaceful relations with Córdoba presented him to attain something that would boost the Christian credentials of the kingdom. Allegedly, Sancho was advised by his sister, Elvira, who was the abbess of San Salvador in León, to negotiate the return of the body of St. Pelagius from Córdoba. Not to be confused with King Pelagius of the Asturias, this is a different Pelagius. Once the negotiations were complete, the remains were placed in a newly refounded monastery dedicated to him and to St. John the Baptist in León. The monastery of St. Pelagius came to be known in the 11th century by the name of its more famous patron, San Isidoro, and that replaced the Church of San Salvador as the royal burial place. But who was St. Pelagius anyway? So the really short version of this story goes that Pelagius was a 10-year-old nephew of Bishop Hermogenius from the city of Tui in Galicia. The bishop was captured in a battle in 920 and taken to Córdoba as a prisoner. 
For some reason, Pelagius was then subsequently offered to take his place while a ransom was being negotiated, only to be executed in 925 by Abdallahman III for allegedly refusing the emir's advances. So as a side note, we need to be cautious whenever we see sexual deviancy as a justification for actions in historical writings. See, the discipline of history as we understand it nowadays is a modern invention. Historians today are basically super specialized detectives trying to tease out facts from sources and archaeology. That is not the case at all with ancient and medieval writers. Their purposes in writing were often a mix of court-sponsored propaganda and morality tales. It didn't really matter to them if the events they were describing happened exactly as they were describing them. Because that wasn't the point. The point usually was to prove the superiority of their particular dogma, to justify the actions of their patrons, and to vilify their enemies. It truly was a time-honored tradition to use what they considered to be sexual deviancies to attack the character of their subject. This is not to say that Abdallahman didn't make advances on Pelagius, because we have no idea one way or the other. But it is to say that whenever we see those kinds of accusations, we need to take them with a grain of salt. The new peace treaty with Al-Andalus had the effect of limiting the opportunities of the frontier aristocracy to gain honor and wealth through warfare and raiding. The Dodo frontier, especially in Castile and Galicia, was particularly troublesome as the counts in both regions really didn't seem to care about the treaty and continually expanded their territory southwards through conquest and resettlement. Most of the truce violations occurred on local initiative and without royal approval. Retaliatory raids from the south were usually aimed at these locations, but often enough they ranged into parts of the kingdom that had nothing to do with the original breaking of the peace. Consequently, this put the monarch and their frontier aristocracy at odds with each other, especially when the king had no interest in going to war and then had to deal with disobedient nobility that kept bringing trouble to his doorstep. Sancho I had to deal with these kind of troublemakers on a consistent basis, especially in Galicia and particularly in the frontier region south of the Douro, where his support seems to have been limited. It was during the course of an expedition against the leading magnate of that region, Count Gonzalo Mendez, that Sancho I died in the monastery of Castrelo on the Minho. He was 31 years old and had ruled Leon for about eight years. And according to the Chronicle of Sampiro, he was killed by eating a poisoned apple sent to him by Count Gonzalo in the course of peace negotiations. We will leave Northern Iberia right here for the moment, with the possible murder of Sancho I. Next episode, we will return to Al-Andalus to catch up with events there, and find out just how Abdallahman III transformed it from an emirate to a caliphate.
Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.